Radio Mano Papachango. That's uh, Carsey Blanton telling it like it is once again. It's called The American Kid. You hear that? That's the sound of the shit hitting the fan. 
what many have predicted, what we've seen coming, like a meteor coming across the fucking solar system for months and years. Feel that impact. If, uh, if you're not in the mood for some anger, some sadness, some disappointment, then you might want to skip this one. There's hope. There's always hope. There's always beauty in the midst of destruction. There's love. No doubt. But the fact that something hurts doesn't make it untrue. And we're in this strange time now where people seem to think that their discomfort with a fact makes that fact less true. I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if that's a, an artifact of consumer culture, of being told what you want to hear uh, for your whole life, or, um, or if there's some other broader historical trend that's creating that, it, it seems to be something that's particularly American at this point. But looking at it historically, you can't say that it's uniquely American. Other societies have gone through this, but we're definitely in this strange time where if you hate the fact that the election came out the other way, it seems that there are a lot of people who need nothing more than their discomfort with that result to be certain that that result is illegitimate. 60 court cases, many of them before Republican judges, many of them judges that Trump himself appointed, and not one of them found any evidence of any wrongdoing. And yet, those idiots storming the Capitol are screaming that the election was stolen. Well, how the fuck does that work? These idiots who write to me or respond to things I put on Instagram and social media telling me that masks don't work. Where the fuck did you study virology? What medical school did you go to? What scientific background do you have? What logic do you have? None. None. They don't need logic. All they need is their own discomfort. I don't like wearing masks, and therefore they don't work. It's a bunch of bullshit. And none of this is meant to diminish or, or um, devalue the discomfort of people who 
For example, somebody who works in a grocery store and they have to work, they have to pay their fucking rent and they have to wear that mask all goddamn day. Yeah, that sucks, man. And nothing I say or have said about that issue is meant to question the discomfort of that. I agree. Or people whose businesses have shut down, people who are desperate and afraid. I agree. I'm with you on that. But there's no logical connection between the fact that the lockdown fucked your business and the conclusion that therefore lockdowns don't work. There's no logical connection between I fucking hate the feeling of this mask and viruses are so small they just go straight through masks. You understand? There's no connection between those two things. It's like saying I, I don't like condoms and, and anyway, <laughs> sperm doesn't cause pregnancy. Like, sorry, dude, nobody likes condoms. But yeah, sperm does cause pregnancy. Uh, it doesn't matter how much condoms suck. Fucking causes pregnancy. Uh, there's just no way around that. And this incapacity or unwillingness to accept something that's true that we wish weren't true is, in my opinion, why we're where we are right now. I mean, I've said it before, it's, and it's a hard thing to say because it sounds like I'm insulting people, and I hope it doesn't come across that way, but not everyone is smart enough to think about things like this. I mean, if you took the average IQ, and IQ admittedly is an imperfect measure of intelligence, no doubt about it. Some of these douchebags in the Senate who are playing with this fire went to Harvard and Yale and Princeton and fucking Stanford, no doubt. So I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about raw intellectual power. I'm talking about knowing how to think critically. I'm talking about having, you know, been educated in recognizing bullshit when you see it. I'm talking about having the luxury of time when you're not working at your job and raising your kids and calling the bank and dealing with all the bullshit. There are many, many things that go into this. But my point is, and I've said it before, there are many, many people who just don't have the time or the capacity to think about things like politics, economics, philosophy. And that's one of the great tragedies of our age, that capitalism keeps people so busy and so tired that they don't have time to think about it. 
That's one of the reasons we have these bullshit jobs. Keep people occupied. They used to say, uh, what's the expression? Idle hands are a devil's workshop. Yeah, you don't want people to think about things too much. They might start to notice what a bunch of bullshit it is. But man, these people marching on the fucking Capitol. That's not a bunch of geniuses down there. I mean, it's if it weren't so tragic, it would be funny. I mean, taking selfies, you've just invaded a federal building. You're smearing shit all over the place and you're taking selfies and posting them online. Gee, wonder if the FBI will be able to track you down. You know, it's like these bank robbers who, who write the fucking ransom note on the back of an envelope addressed to them. Like, wh- what are you doing? The woman who was trampled to death was carrying a flag that said, don't tread on me. I guess that didn't work. It's, it's the revolt of the idiocy, of the idiocracy. And I'll tell you something. This was not a random, perfect storm of mistakes and oversights. This was planned from inside the White House. When Trump replaced the Secretary of Defense, I think his name was Esper, a couple of weeks ago, People are like, why the fuck would he do that now? He's only got a few weeks left in office. Why replace him? Why replace all these other people at the upper levels of defense and national security? What's the point? Well, now we know what the point was. The point was when the Capitol Police and the mayor of Washington, D.C. called for the National Guard said, oh, my God, we've got a fucking disaster going on here. The Secretary of Defense didn't pick up the phone. He didn't authorize the National Guard for two hours. Trump refused to authorize National Guard for two hours while he watched on TV while these fucking idiots broke through the doors with zip ties looking for Nancy Pelosi and Mike Pence. So they could hang them. So they could tear them apart like fucking hyenas. That was the point. Why'd you have a few dozen Capitol Police while thousands of people marched toward the Capitol? Oh, oh, I guess we were underprepared. Oh, maybe the uh, chief of the Capitol Police should resign. No shit. You weren't underprepared. You were prepared. You were told what to do and what not to do. And I don't know if this fucked up, conflicted, illusion-based society of ours will ever get to the bottom of it, will ever expose what really happened, just like we've been living for 50 years with no real answers about what happened to Kennedy, bunch of disinformation, bunch of distraction, because we can't take the truth 
maybe this is the germ of where we are now, this sort of paternalistic government tells us that believes we can't handle the truth. And maybe they're right. Maybe we can't. And this is another problem. The failure of, I was listening to a podcast recently and um, I think the phrase he used was um, the failure of benevolent authority, right? This sort of sense that government or church or the media or whomever it is knows what they're doing and has our best interest at heart. Now, maybe most of you listening to me have never felt that. I don't know. It's interesting because, you know, when you, you get older and you look back at the things you believed as a kid, there's, there's a, a confusion like how much of what I believed as a kid is just because I was a kid and all kids believe those things versus I believe those things because it was a particular historical time, in my case, the 60s and early 70s, right? So I don't know. That would be something I'd, I'd, I'd like to hear from you about. Those of you who are, you know, under 40 or 35 or whatever, did you, when you were a kid, did you believe in a sort of blanket benevolence of society? And I mean, for example, I, I used to think like um, food in the grocery store. Well, there's no way they wouldn't sell anything that was bad for you. Right. And just no one would do that. Like, why would you do that? Or, you know, media wouldn't lie. I mean, most of you don't even know who Walter Cronkite was, but Walter Cronkite was the, the host of CBS Evening News. Um, there were only three channels, CBS, ABC and NBC in the United States. And... um so the news that people were getting was basically the same for everyone. There was no Fox there, you know, feeding right wing paranoid fantasies of Negroes and Mexicans coming to take over America. There, there was no MSNBC, you know, peddling LGBTQ victimization and you know, the, and, and I'm not saying that all these perspectives are illegitimate. What I'm saying is that you have targeted media now and it's, it's fragmented in a way that it picks its audience and it feeds the audience what that particular audience wants to hear. It's like advertising, right? Fox, what are the ads on Fox for fucking catheters and warmed toilet seats and walkers and reverse mortgages and, you know, all this shit that old people want or don't want, but, you know, can be sold. Um, you know, and then you have, you know, it's like outside magazine is ads for camping gear. I mean, like everything is fragmented and, and focused. 
and what happens when you don't have one overarching source of truth is then there is no truth and everyone splits into their little tribal truths. Anyway, I got off the point. What the fuck was the point? The point was that I and most people would not have ever thought that Walter Cronkite would lie to us. Why would he? His, his job was to tell the truth. He ended every episode of or an episode is I don't even know if that's the right word for the news every um, night after you know doing I think it was either 30 minutes or 60 minutes maybe uh, of the news and he was talking about body counts in Vietnam and landing on the moon and you know riots in Chicago a lot of shit was happening in the late 60s and early 70s anyway every night he would end he would say and that's the way it is. Thursday, December 7th, 1972. And that was it. That's the way it is. Not that's our interpretation of the way it is. Not that's what we want you to believe is the way it is. Just that's the way it is. I don't know who says that now. Who's offering that? And I try to offer it in my micro, microcosmic way. But I mean, I, I, I'm part of this world, this fractured world. I can't tell you that my opinions are true. I can only say they're true for me. I've been paying attention. I've been watching what's been happening. I've got my understanding of historical trends and how one thing leads into another and how one system feeds into another. But that's my interpretation. I can't tell you it's necessarily true. A big part of where we are now, in speaking of, you know, my understanding and trajectories and historical systems that feed into one another, I, I personally feel that where we are right now is that seeds that were planted in the 1980s have matured. Ronald Reagan was the first president who came to office um, pissing on government. The appeal of the Reagan revolution, which most of you won't remember, was government is not the solution to a problem. Government is the problem. And literally, I think there was some line he... He was famous for saying, you know, um, I don't know, the worst nine words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you, something like that. I don't even know if that's nine words. Um, but, and then he'd like chuckle, right? So the whole thing was government is bullshit. Government bureaucrats are here to take your money, steal your money. And this is, by the way, let's be really honest about this. The 
Subtext to that is, hey, white people who work hard, the government is basically here to overtax you, take that money and give it to these lazy black people. The whole thing goes back to the Civil War. The whole thing goes back to the original sin of enslaving people. And then when they finally manage to get free, calling them lazy and condemning them for not working. Right? All, all these descendants of slaves are here to rip us off. So now we're the slaves, right? It's like lazy Mexicans. Cliche, lazy Mexicans. You ever been to fucking Mexico? You ever been to California? You ever seen the people who are out there bent over picking the fucking rutabagas and onions? You ever been to a chicken processing plant? You ever been to a kitchen of a restaurant? Anthony Bourdain used to talk about that all the time. Like the entire American restaurant industry would collapse without Mexicans who are working their asses off for way less money than Americans would want. And I love this whole thing like, well, Americans don't want those jobs. Yeah, Americans will take those jobs. They won't do them for six bucks an hour, no health care, and living in a fucking back of a box truck next to the field. In other words, Americans won't be enslaved. Douchebag. So it's not that Americans don't want those jobs. It's that you're not willing to pay Americans a fair price to do those jobs. So you support this exploitative system of having Mexicans risk their lives coming across the border so they can work for you for less than fair market value for their labor, risk their fucking lives working in these chicken processing plants. They get hurt. You can fire them. You have no workman's comp. They have no unemployment insurance. They have nothing. And then to top it off, we batter around this cliche about Mexicans being lazy. Oh, yeah. Reminds me of my least favorite, my most, the most annoying phrase in the English language, Indian giver. Now, for those of you who aren't American, Indian giver is someone who gives you something and then changes their mind and wants it back. We stole this country from the Indians. We signed our president signed treaties that were ratified by Congress saying the Black Hills will always belong to the Lakota Nation. Oh, there's gold in there? Uh, never mind. No, no, we don't we don't honor that treaty. Dozens, scores, maybe hundreds of treaties were signed by the US government and then reneged upon. And they're the ones who give something and then want it back? Oh, man. All right. I can only rant about this shit so much before I annoy the hell out of you and I get my blood pressure up too high. Um, but I do think that there are two things that happened with, with Reagan, really important things. One was this idea that someone could run for office as being 
on the side of the voter but against the government. And we've seen that continue and and sort of accelerate up and up to this day where we actually have the president calling for armed insurrection against the government and against not only against the government itself but against the whole notion of representative democracy this is the bitter fruit of the tree that was planted in 1980 it's nonsense of course how can you want to be the leader of a government that you consider to be the enemy of the people? I mean, what? It's like it's like you want to be the pilot of the airplane, but you hate the whole idea of airplanes and you think that flight itself is ridiculous and should be stopped. I, I mean, what? And somehow people buy into this. People agree with this people vote for people who say they hate government like uh, did did nobody understand that this was never going to work that this was always going to end in disaster yeah many of us did understand it but the problem is and here's the second th thing that happened or at least that was um, sort of manifested in the Reagan administration that has blossomed into this black flower of the present. The Reagan administration was where Madison Avenue and Pennsylvania Avenue came together. In other words, modern advertising became melded with politics for the first time in a very deep sense where see advertisers don't care about what they're selling it doesn't matter there's no in fact i wrote about this way back in college my big thesis was about advertising it was called a sad heart at the supermarket and it was about how it's not just that, that advertisers don't care about the products. It's that they, they actually don't want to know about the products because that interferes with their creativity in selling the products. So, you know, an advertising executive would, let's say you've got a pork account. You're trying to sell pork. An advertising executive would never go to a slaughterhouse. Would never go to a farm. Would never want to see how pigs are raised, slaughtered, processed. You don't want to know anything about that because you're not selling the reality. You're selling, you're selling the product by convincing people it's something else. If we advertised the truth, God, imagine how different the economy would look. Right? If like an advertisement for iPhones included images of children in Africa working in cobalt mines for pennies a day, or if McDonald's included 
shots of the Amazon being the rainforest being destroyed for cattle farms. And, you know, if the truth were part of advertising, oh, the world would look very different. So advertising has nothing to do with the product. It's all about creating some kind of image or yearning in the consumer that they momentarily address by buying the product. But it's never about the product itself, not really. And similarly, people like Newt Gingrich, um, Karl Rove, political consultants who came of age in, in the 80s and have continued till now, it doesn't matter who the candidate is. It doesn't matter what the candidate believes. It doesn't matter what the candidate's going to do. It's all about advertising a product. It's about creating an image. And so there's this dissociation between the substance and the presentation. An absolute disengagement between those two things. And so it makes perfect sense that Ronald Reagan was an actor, right? Ronald Reagan was the front man. He wasn't really in charge. And all this stuff you'll hear like, oh, Reagan did this, Reagan did that. Reagan didn't do shit. Reagan was as stupid and disengaged and fraudulent as Trump is. Reagan was a fucking divorcee with a gay kid who preached family values and acted like everybody's fucking 1950s father figure. It's bullshit. And most of the people in Reagan's cabinet all came from the Bechtel Corporation, one privately owned company that worked in or is still exists, one of the most secretive, powerful private corporations in the world that works in uh, oil. They do oil drilling and I don't know what the fuck else, all that stuff with in big oil wells, billions and billions of dollars. And you had four or five different people in his cabinet all came from the board of directors of that one company. So the shit that was going on was not Ronald Reagan's idea. It was big fucking oil that was running the show. Anyway, time for some music, a musical interlude. And then I'll come back, and after this, I will try not to talk about politics. I've got some other things I wanted to tell you about. So this is a song, a very political song, a very angry song. It's um, There was a song, uh, I guess in the 30s, called If I Had a Hammer, Woody Guthrie, I think. Uh, and it's about building. If I had a hammer, I'd hammer in the morning, I'd hammer in the evening. I think the mamas and the papas covered it. It's very sort of hopeful song about building and helping people. And um, Well, this is Bruce Coburn, who is a Canadian guitarist 
extraordinaire. I mean, amazing. Listen to the the finger work in this song. Um, songwriter, very political guy. Um, in the 80s, he spent a lot of time in Central America where the Reagan administration was waging a dirty war in El Salvador, Nicaragua, Honduras, Guatemala, um, assassinating priests and nuns and community organizers and people trying to set up medical clinics to help the poor. Can't have that. That's communism. Anyway, look into it. There's some movies. Uh, the Dire Straits album, Brothers in Arms, is is mostly about um, that moment, that situation. Uh, there's a lot of um, interesting history. Those of you who are young whippersnappers don't remember that. Uh, look up Oliver North. Um, yeah, there's some... There's a really good movie about a photojournalist in El Salvador. I forget what it's called. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll think of it later. Anyway, this song is called If I Had a Rocket Launcher. Sort of a 1980s take on If I Had a Hammer. If I Had a Rocket Launcher, Bruce Coburn. This is the acoustic version. There's also an album version. So if you like the song, look for the album version. Okay, I'll be right back. Second time today Everybody scatters And hopes it goes away How many kids they've murdered Only God can say If I had a rocket launcher If I had a rocket launcher, I'd make somebody pay. I don't believe in guarded borders, and I don't believe in hate. I don't believe in general. Stinking torture states And when I talk with the survivors Of things too sickening to relate If I had a rocket launcher If I had a rocket launcher If I had a rocket launcher I would retaliate Starving. 
It's hard to know where to come down on all this stuff. Here's a beautiful song, beautiful guitar work. And he's singing about torture and revenge, despair. I don't know. I get emails from people sometimes saying, hey, man. Love the podcast, but you sound kind of angry lately, you know? Maybe you should, I don't know, meditate or, you know, don't take it so seriously. And I agree that stressing out about things can be counterproductive and that we should 
never lose sight of the beautiful, uh, which there always is. And uh, we should never lose a sense of gratitude. But on the other side, that whole sort of like, eh, chill out, man, you know, take a toke and relax, plays into the hands of those who orchestrate this fucking mess that we're in that keeps getting worse. So there is a place for anger. There is a place for outrage. I mean, you know, as I was saying earlier, if you're, I don't know, 30 or under, maybe you have never known America, an American culture to be competent and maybe you don't realize what's collapsing here because it's been in the process of collapse your entire life and so you know it finally hits the ground and like yeah well whatever it's always been falling you know I, I, I don't know um, but if you talk to people from other countries and people you know my age and up they'll tell you that you know, America's made a lot of mistakes, of course, Vietnam and, and, you know, what that song was about, the mess in Central America. And, you know, we've taught torture to, you know, the Shah of Iran's private police force and Chile and the Philippines and the Indonesia. You know, we the United States is not uh, a particularly benevolent force in the world. But but. The United States is the place that was the source of hope for the future, for the entire fucking planet. And, you know, the United States was the place that gave us John F. Kennedy and Muhammad Ali and landing on the fucking moon and the cure for polio and you know automobiles and airplanes the united states was the source of a lot of really good shit and it was the place where if you were smart enough and lucky enough and worked hard enough you could go there and make a bunch of fucking money and have a really good life and make enough money that you could send a bunch of it back home or you could bring your relatives because it was also a place that welcomed immigrants. Well, that place is gone and, that, and that's a big loss, not just for America, but for the world. And, um, you know, I know a lot of people listen to this podcast in Australia, for example, and I imagine you are feeling a sense of dismay that may be even greater than what some Americans feel because 
we're caught up in the we're caught up in it and by you know seeing it from afar you see more clearly what the fuck is happening anyway enough of that i uh i'm sure i'll talk about it more as it continues and it and it is continuing by the way i don't think this is over i don't think it's one failed uh, attempt and and Bush is going to resign or Bush uh, Trump is going to resign and and you know slink off in shame. I don't think so. I think there's more coming. I think I was reading earlier that um, they're planning armed demonstrations in state capitals. They're planning another assault on Washington with guns. Yeah. That was just the first uh, first thunderclap in a, a storm that is just beginning. Uh, okay, but other things that are happening in a world that's out of control. Sounds like I'm about to do an ad, doesn't it? In a world that's out of control, there are small things that we can do to give ourselves a sense of control. I decided uh, to stop drinking alcohol for, I'm doing a dry January, so I'm 10 days into that. And uh, that's interesting. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. I lived in Spain so long that I sort of adopted Spanish approaches to to coffee, to booze, to food, to, to women, to many things. I I um I uh I really like Spanish culture and I like the way the Spanish approach life in general. Um and uh but I I have noticed that I have been drinking I, I don't drink hard alcohol i drink wine and beer um but i've been like gaining weight and feeling bloated and heavy and when i drink wine before bed i always wake up in the middle of the night you know and then i have to get back to sleep and um and i don't get a buzz from alcohol like when i was younger i'd drink a few beers and i'd be like woo, a little loopy now i i i could drink five bottles of wine and you wouldn't even notice uh at least that's what i think um but no i ask people around me like you know do i change uh, slur my speech act weird make different decisions no i'm i'm just the way and so it's kind of like you know i've never understood that thing like oh you could he can drink someone under the table it's like you're proud that you spend all this money and you assault your liver and you actually don't even get any effect from it. It's like, oh, what's up with that? Um, so why am I drinking? It's it's sort of ritualistic. I love the taste of beer, but honestly, it's the first beer that tastes really good. The others, the subsequent beers, I don't notice. I like the taste of red wine, especially with a meal. Um, but you know. Like, I'll drink wine with dinner, and then I'll drink wine while I watch a movie or read a book or hang out or whatever. And, you know, what am I getting out of that? 
uh, I don't really know. So anyway, I decided to to um, not drink in January, and I, I do this every year. So, and I think you know part of it is yeah, give your liver a break, uh, give your overall body a break, but also it almost doesn't matter what the thing is. It's the experience of deciding you're going to do something and then doing it. That's empowering. So I'm not saying, you know, I'm not advising everyone, like, you should not drink for a month. Join me in the month of January or what's left of it and, you know, give up drinking or give up this or that. Do whatever you want. But I do think that it's a good exercise um, especially, you know, there's a voice in you saying, eh, what, maybe you should like not drink so much. Maybe you should take a break. And you're like, yeah, eventually, maybe I will, you know, but I don't, not tonight, you know. That wears you down. And that can, if you don't listen to that voice, it becomes weaker and weaker until you don't hear it anymore. And so I do think that there's something really valuable in saying, you know what, I've been feeling like I want to do this. Like another thing I'm doing is I go, I walk at least a couple of miles every day. And I've been listening to podcasts, which is interesting because, you know, I've been in the world of podcasts for a long time, um, but I haven't really listened to a lot of them. And so it's cool. I, I got some AirPods or whatever they're called, those Apple earbud things. Um, and I, I just take off and walk fast. Um, so it's like not quite jogging, but, you know, I get my heart rate up and I definitely would not want to be having a conversation. And I listen and, uh, and the air is clean and it gets me outside and, and it's good. Um, but my point is like the whole Wim Hof thing, like it's it's inherently difficult for for whim i think because what is whim selling how do you monetize something as simple as you know <laughs> take a cold shower uh, jump in a cold river and yes i do think that there are demonstrable uh, tonic effects of the cold water on your body but more importantly I think that when you do something that's uncomfortable but that you want to do, when you do it, you strengthen that muscle in yourself. I'm starting to sound like Joe Rogan here. Um, and I've got some thoughts about Joe Rogan, which I'll get to after the next song. But um, I do think that it's really important important to do what it is that you feel you should excuse me you should be doing whether that's doing some push-ups every day or calling your mother or um, changing your diet in a way that you know you shouldn't be you know like uh do i really need this much ice cream do i really need any ice cream you know whatever it is there's some Something nagging at you, some some voice in yourself saying, yeah, you know, life would be better if you didn't do this or if you did do that. Whatever it is, if you do it a little bit, it strengthens that. And that's a good thing. Um, 
And so I honestly don't know. Uh, and I, I almost don't really care that much about the physiological repercussions of not drinking for a month, but it feels good because I decided to do it and I'm doing it. And that in itself, I think is, is healthy. All right. I've been going on almost an hour, so I'm not going to play another song and then talk more. I'm just going to finish what I have to say and then I'll play a song and then I'll, so I was going to talk about some of the, um, some of the podcasts that I've been listening to. Um, been listening to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast called Revisionist History. Quite interesting. I listened to a four-part series about Curtis LeMay, who was a general in World War II um, uh, in the Air Force initially. And it's very interesting about the... Um, some of the decisions that are made in war, and this circles back to the, I think, the first point I made an hour ago about how our not wanting something to be true does not affect whether it is or not. So one of the main themes running through Gladwell's examination of Curtis LeMay is... Uh, how bombing was um, viewed in the war and, and, and other decisions that are made in wars. And Curtis LeMay was a no-nonsense, uh, you know, problem solver. And his approach to war was... <sighs> War is horrible, and lots of innocent people die. It creates incredible suffering. And so it's incumbent upon those of us making decisions in wars. If we decide to go to war, we better win it as quickly as possible, because the shorter the war is, the less suffering is caused. That was his calculation. And that was the thinking that underlay or that uh, sort of generated the decision to drop nuclear weapons on Japan. And it was also the thinking that uh, generated the development of napalm. And that is a a logic that leads to very uncomfortable conclusions about killing civilians, about just, you know, absolute brutality. But it is very strong logic. You know, Gladwell looks at the Korean War, which came after World War II, obviously, which dragged on and on and on and on. And, you know, both literally and figuratively could be said to still be happening because no peace treaty was ever signed. 
uh, the Korean War was never actually declared a war. It was like a military incursion or something like that. But, you know, officially, technically, the United States is still at war with North Korea. And then you wonder why North Korea is such a fucked up, bizarre, weird ass little country. It's because the United States wiped it out, bombed basically every city and town in North Korea was obliterated because a different philosophy was at work there. Uh, Wear them down, but don't do anything outrageous. Curtis LeMay would have said, fucking threaten to drop a nuclear bomb on Beijing. And if they don't stop sending troops, do it. The war's over. Boom. One or not even Beijing, Nanking or whatever. The war would have been over. And when you tally up the destruction and the death, he's right. It would have been less. And then you wouldn't have had, you know, who knows what you would have had, but you wouldn't have had the insanity coming out of North Korea. I don't know. I don't know. My point is that it's an interesting podcast. So that's uh, Malcolm Gladwell talking about Curtis LeMay. Um, Then I listened to Joe Rogan on Lex Friedman's podcast. That was interesting because there aren't a lot of podcasts where Joe's being interviewed. Um, and Lex Friedman's an interesting guy, interesting style, very, very smart. Uh, so I'd recommend that. And that was, that was really interesting because, you know, Joe talked, and this is something Joe and I get into every time I go on his show. Um, the sort of, you know, Joe, Joe talks about, um, working out as a way to sort of exercise his demons, that he's got uh, all this rage and energy and fear and whatever, and and he needs to like spend three hours a day punching a heavy bag in order to be happy and calm and good with himself. And you know what I always try to get at with Joe is that. You know, you do what you got to do. And and people have actually written to me and said, hey, man, why are you always like pissing on working out? And there's nothing wrong with working out. And I agree. There's nothing wrong with working out. The problem is that I think a lot of the workout culture is a denial of death because people think that if they, you know, work on their bodies to the point where they're all muscly and got their barbed wire tattoos and whatever that that they they have no fear they have no vulnerability they have they're just in fucking tough and you know it's like these these guys get their trucks jacked up and they got the you know the gun racks and they got the four-wheel drive and they like yeah you run out of gas you're out of gas dude i don't care how fucking macho your truck is um and people do that with their bodies right so you know i I think spending all that time in the gym and martial arts like hey i did martial arts 
I did martial arts when I was a scared teenager. And then I grew up and I'm not a scared teenager anymore. And um, I think the point I'm trying to make is that these are symptomatic uh, responses. So, you know, it's strange because I'm not criticizing people for saying, hey, I need to do this in order to feel good. I understand that. But I think the deeper question is, why do you need to do that to feel good? What is the source of the rage that you need to work out every day or you turn into a monster? What is the source of the shame or the fear that you're responding to by building up your muscles or buying your big truck or buying those guns or right. You only need one gun if you're a gun person or maybe a handgun and a shotgun, depending on what your, you know, home defense. But why do some people have 20 guns? What is it that they're responding to? And it's not enough to say, I just like guns. I just like working out. Just like trucks. Mm, no, I don't buy that. It's deeper than that. This is a response to something. And the symptomatic approaches don't solve the problem. So, yeah, it's an interesting conversation. I mean, Joe talks about how he was doing some competition with friends and they were working out a lot and he, he spent like seven hours on a, a elliptical machine or something and you know just because he wanted to win and and he's like man i turned into a fucking killer a fucking assassin i you know i, I felt this this rage and this and it's like dude like joe's self-awareness is so beautiful and so uh admirable but i i do wish that i could just fucking you know give him a hug and and introduce him to a good therapist jeez yeah because it's just uh you know it's just taking the the edge off but it's not i don't know it's like taking taking painkillers but not pulling the knife out of your leg you know it's (laughs) there's a deeper issue going on here all right um and speaking of which oh that's what i wanted to say uh there's also an interesting article on um i think it's either on medium or substack i don't remember Um, but somebody mentioned it on the reddit the tangentially speaking subreddit it's about bro culture, and it's by uh, Patrick Wyman, W-Y-M-A-N. Very interesting. Very interesting. He talks about Rogan and the sort of, um, you know, tactical dude culture that's built up uh, around him and, and other, you know, Aubrey Marcus and, and, I don't know, various, you know, former Navy SEALs and uh, all these kind of tough dudes. And um, he sort of he locates it within the the uh, tradition of like medieval 
knights and but you could also locate it within the tradition of warrior culture and Native American uh, tribes and um, you know shogun in, in Japan and there's there's always been a a culture in which young men prove themselves and seek guidance uh, and and structure for their lives and uh, it's interesting it's definitely a double-edged sword it's you know there there's a lot that's that's admirable about it. I mean, it, it ties back to what I was saying earlier about, uh, you know, taking control of yourself. And if you decide you're drinking too much, stop and, and follow through with it or, you know, do your pushups or jump in the fucking river or whatever it is. You know, there's, there's a very positive and necessary aspect of that kind of discipline. Um, but if it's not, accompanied by thought and self-reflection and the awareness that sometimes these things we do in the exterior world are function as distractions from something that needs attended to in the interior world, um, then they can actually be counterproductive. All right. That's all I have to say. I just felt like I needed to check in with you. Uh, it's strange when so much is going on, whether in my personal life or in in the exterior world, I feel these sort of dueling impulses to, on the one hand, sit down in front of this microphone and, and check in with my friends out there. And on the other hand, it's like it's just too much. It's too much, and, and I don't know how to talk about so much. So I just press the red button and start talking, and here we are. All right, I'm going to end with um, a song that I think is fitting, given that the theme of this rant has been finding beauty in the pain um, yeah, this is um, Bob Dylan, one of his greatest songs, I think, about uh, a blues musician named Blind Willie McTell. I hope you've got a shelter from the storm and uh, and that we can ride this one out together. Much love to everybody, and I will be back with you soon. Seen the arrow on the doorpost Saying this land is condemned All the way from New Orleans To I travel through East Texas Where many martyrs fell And I know no one can sing the blues Like blind Willie down See them big blues 
plantations burning Hear the cracking of the winds Smell that sweet magnolia blooming See the ghost of slavery ship I can hear them tribes moaning Hear that undertaker's bell Yeah. 